The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Who can remember the theme verse of the book that I presented last week? Anybody recall? Pardon? Good. First Samuel 2, verse 30. And that's merely a shortened version of what Hannah herself prays in First Samuel 2, 9 and 10. I'm going to open up my Bible. You've got your Bibles. Those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. And here's how Hannah worded it. Yahweh will guard the feet of his faithful ones, his dependent ones, his loyal ones. He will guard their feet... But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall man prevail. The adversaries of Yahweh shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king, and he will exalt the power of his Messiah, his anointed one. Here's the basic flow of this book. First and second Samuel, a single book. You start out with the need to honor the Lord and the hope of a king-priest. Hannah speaks of this king at the end of her song. And it's that episode of Hannah's barrenness and God's provision in light of her prayer that provides the first half of those who honor me, I will honor. It's a little picture. And then the second episode, which is about Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who are maligning the worship of God, and Eli, the high priest, who fails to deal with his kids. So a problem is created, and then we have a long speech. That's how the first episode was about, too. Hannah's problem is created, and then at the end you have a long speech, the climax of which is a focus on the Messiah. So too in chapter 3, now you have the second half of the phrase, not those who honor me I will honor, but those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. And and chapter 2, verse 12, all the way to the end of the chapter, gives an example of that. Those who despise me, God will put down. And so God makes a promise through this man of God, the prophet, that he will put Hophni and Phinehas down. The priestly line of Eli will end, and then we get this statement. So Hannah's song in the first episode, which is about those who honor me, I will honor, ends with a focus on the Messiah. Now the man of God, that's the title given to the prophet, who speaks to Eli, his words end with a focus on the Messiah as well. The end of chapter 2, verse 35. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house. And then we have, and 
there's a pronoun, shall go in and out before my anointed forever. So the anointed there is an echo of Hannah's statement. You with me? There's a a mention of the Messiah at the end of Hannah's song and at the end of the speech of the man of God. But the way that it's worded in the ESV sounds like this priest that God is promising is someone different than the Messiah. The priest who will have a sure house. Who shall do according to what is in God's heart and in his mind. And the way the ESV has it, this priest shall go in and out before my anointed, as if there's going to be a king, and the priest is going to go in and out before the king. But the message changes if we just recognize that in Hebrew there's no neuter pronouns. There's either feminine or masculine. And so if you have a neuter it, like you would say for a house, rather than a priest, you're going to use the same pronoun, he. It does double duty. That that masculine pronoun does double duty, not only for masculine things, but also for neutral things that are not either male or female. And I propose that that little pronoun there in verse 35, when it says, and I will build him a sure house, and he, I would propose that that's it. Namely, the sure house that God is going to build the priest. That the house, that's the most recent statement, I will build him a sure house, and it's the house that will move in and out before the anointed. Namely, the priest king. That the anointed is the priest and he's the king. There's a weird thing going on in the book of Samuel where the king, whether it be Saul or David, end up doing a lot of priestly things. They offer sacrifices. They talk to God and God answers them. David's able to go into the temple and get the bread of presence and feed it to his men, something that Jesus notes only the priests are able to do. And it suggests to me that there's this this blurring of, okay, the priests are bad, we need a new priest. And there's no king, says judges over and over again, we need a king, someone who will truly, purely Honor God, representing God to the people. And there seems to be this blurring of the priest and the king in this book. As if he's the same person. And yet David will ultimately not fit the bill. He's going to fail, and there's going to be to the need for one greater than David. A greater priest king. Before whom all the redeemed will go in and out forever. Now, The need is set in chapters 1 through 7, and then the people request a king, and they get Saul. The same kind of king they want, they get, and it's not a good thing. And Saul rises and Saul falls, and then God, in light of Saul's disobedience, says, I'm going to bring someone better than you. And that better than you is characterized as someone who is all about the honor of God rather than the honor of themselves, who fears God rather than fears men. 
Saul is characterized by the fear of man. We're going to see a number of passages today where that's noted. And yet in Deuteronomy 17, that passage in Deuteronomy where the role of the king is laid out, fear of man is not on the radar. You need to have a small army. Minimize your wealth. Don't create these military alliances, but be a man of the word so that the fear of God may be nurtured in your soul. Don't fear man, fear God. And David's that kind of man. And and because of that, he stands in contrast to Saul. And even before David is the king, he is being depicted as the ultimate royal ideal who's all about the honor of God. And Saul is going to be contrasted, a literary foil, with this David. And Saul's going to do everything wrong and David's going to do everything right. Up until David becomes king and God makes a covenant with him, And then, just when we think he might be that offspring of the woman who was promised from Genesis 3.15, the very one who would put an end to all evil, before we begin to think David's it, right after chapter 7, when God makes the covenant with him, and David has his very final battle, positive battle, in chapter 8, which is against the son of Nahash. It's very intriguing. Nahash, say that with me. Nahash, guess what it means? Serpent. Saul's first battle is against King Nahash, and he has victory. David's last successful battle is against the son of Nahash. And there's a framing that's taking place. And right after Saul's battle against the serpent, king, where he has victory, the narrative immediately goes to tell us of Saul's sin and rebellion and disobedience. And it suggests the reader is supposed to identify the serpent killer and then realize Saul's just a picture. And then with David, he comes, this frames the story, right after God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, 2 Samuel 8, the text goes and tells us that David battles the son of Nachash. The offspring of the serpent. Well, that's striking. And he goes head to head with the offspring of the serpent and he wins. And all of a sudden, the reader is being drawn in, wondering, is David this Messiah? The ultimate Messiah? And then in chapter 9, everything goes south and we begin to see the story of Bathsheba in chapter 10. Because David's not it. But the eyes of the reader are heightened to anticipate, to remember the promises, to anticipate the kingdom. And all of a sudden, we're in this context where we're saying the Messiah matters. Put our hope in Him. This is a book that's designed to heighten our hunger for the King of all kings. Who will honor God. And when He honors God, He will be exalted. And then... The king is merely the picture of who we're supposed to be. So, David's honoring of Yahweh and the rise and establishment of the ideal royal figure, but lest we think he is the ultimate ideal, David's dishonoring act and the demise of his reign. That's how the book ends, and then we get an appendix which summarizes the message of the book in a poem, Another poem, David's last words, and then in two stories, which sound, I mean, we read them and we wonder why they're there. 
The first story is about David's mighty men, which is about 30 men, the last of whom is Uriah the Hittite, who are David's key warriors, but they don't attain to the status of the three. And what do we see in the three? Three people, what set them apart was not only the great feats they did in battle, specifically what sets it apart, and this is the narrative, the story that's unpacked there at the end of 2 Samuel. They went out of their way. David says after a battle, I'm thirsty. So the three come together, and what do they do? They enter into Bethlehem, which is at present, overcome by the enemy. They sneak through the gate because David's from Bethlehem. Oh, I wish I had a drink from the well in Bethlehem. They hear the will of the king, and they're willing to sacrifice their lives at whatever cost to honor the king. And they go in, and they come out, and they honor the king, and what do we see? We see the ulti- a perfect picture of David as he should be. Because David is honored, and what magnifies his own honor before the three men is that he takes their water, which was gained by the sake of their lives, and he pours it out before the Lord, thus honoring God in light of their sacrifice. It's the message of the book. Those who honor God will be honored. The three men honor their king and are honored, and David honors his God and is honored. And then what's the second story that closes the book? 2 Samuel 24, the census. The anger of Yahweh incited David to take the census. It's very intriguing there. It's the anger of the Lord that incited David to take the census. And then in verse 11, David is crying out before God because he sinned. In Chronicles, it doesn't say the anger of Yahweh incited David to take the census. It says Satan incited David to take the census. And I propose they're not against each other. They have different purposes. So when we get to Chronicles, we'll have to ask, why is it that the census is portrayed differently? Why is Satan being elevated in that context as the instrument? And in Kings, it's God, Yahweh, who's over all things whose anger burns, and sin is not only... This is one of the amazing teachings of the Bible. Sin does not only deserve judgment, sin is judgment. Romans chapter 1, They did not honor God as God, or give thanks to Him, therefore what? God gave them over to their sinful passions. God gave them over to a debased mind. So their sin produced more sin. And that new sin was judgment of God, as God gave them over. So too, in this instance, Israel's sin moves God to move David to more sin. But what happens in the context? He has three options. He chooses the plague. Three days of plague. I forget, I think it's like 80,000 People in Israel die. And in this instance, David breaks. And he falls down before the Lord. He builds an altar on the future place where the temple will be. 
And God, seeing David's ripping of soul, his deep-hearted grief over his own sin and rebellion, that's honoring God. When you're able to recognize it and see him as the only source, all of a sudden, God stops the plague. But in the context, remember, Arauna, he has the, he's the owner of the field, and he says, David, I'll just give it to you. David says, I'm not going to do that. This isn't about me. This isn't about my honor, as if I deserve anything like you giving me the field that I'm going to offer this sacrifice on. No, this is all about God. I'll pay you for the field. I've already messed up so much. And he builds an altar, and he honors God, and God honors him. Once again, it's the message of the book. Those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Key transitions. This is a book of transitions. Number one, there's a historical transition from the period of the judges to the period of the kings. There's a geographical transition. Because up until this point, Israel has merely been following the presence of God. Remember, through the wilderness, they had the movable tent. They didn't have a building where God's presence was. He stayed in a tent. And when his presence lifted, Israel followed. And when his presence stopped, Israel waited. Well, now they've come into the land, and God has settled his presence in Shiloh, in the north. And that presence... Represented by the Ark of the Covenant, departs from Israel. We saw that in chapter 4. The Ark of the Covenant gets stolen. God allows his presence to be stolen because Israel was more concerned about their glory, their heaviness, than God's glory and his heaviness. His weightiness, his honor, all those are the same word in Hebrew. Honor, weighty, heavy, glory. And so God, at the end of chapter 4, just turn a couple pages over there, what we read is, verse 21, Phineas's wife, as she's dying, names her boy Ichabod. No glory. Why? Because the glory has departed from Israel. Ikavov is the word for glory. That is no glory. Then you see the word for glory in verse 21. Verse 22 has the same word for glory. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel. That's exactly the same word as 1 Samuel 2.30. Those who honor me, that is those who glorify me, I will glorify, I will honor. It's the same word as verse 18 of chapter 4. He was old and heavy. Then we move into the, keep going in the story with the ark narrative. So the ark moves, the glory leaves Shiloh and goes into Philistia and hits all five of the Philistine cities. Look at verse 6. The hand of Yahweh was glorious, heavy, weighty upon the people of Ashdod. Same word. Verse 11. At the very, so they sent the ark of God away. Let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us or the people. 
For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole Philistine city, and the hand of God was very, what? Heavy, glorious, weighty upon them. Chapter 6, verse 5. So you must make images of tumors. Remember the Philistines say, send the ark back to Israel. It's too much for us. These are lessons about the glory of God. That's what it is. Israel got a lesson. The Philistines get a lesson. Send the ark back and throw into it some tumors and mice, which is all part of the plague of what God did to them because they took lightly the glory of God, the ark of the covenant. And so what does it say? Don't give your glory to yourself. Verse 5 of chapter 6, give glory to the God of Israel. They're learning the lesson. So the hand of God was glorious upon them, and the Philistines are now learning, we need to give God the glory, not keep it for ourselves. Verse 6, why should we harden the hearts? Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? That's not the normal word for hardness. It only shows up one time like that in Exodus. All the other times, a different word is used for the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. This word for hardness, both why should you harden and Pharaoh hardened, is the word heavy. They made their hearts heavy against God. They honored themselves rather than honored God. All of this is about the glory of God. Those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me by honoring themselves will be put down. This author is using this word over and over again. Now Hannah, look back at chapter 2, verse 8. He raises up the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of glory, honor, weightiness. She experienced it in her own life. Who's the he that does it? She already told us. Verse 2, there is none holy like the Lord. Those who honor God are those who recognize the significance of His worth. His holiness. So the ark of God now comes back to Israel. It's riding on a cart. The Philistines send it back. They've learned about the glory of God, and now they're wanting to give God the glory. What will Israel do? They failed their first test. What will they do now? And the ark comes back, and a group opens up the ark. Look at chapter 6, verse 19. And God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of Yahweh. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because Yahweh had struck the people with a great blow. The men of Beth Shemesh then said, at that time, who is able to stand before Yahweh, this holy God? Hannah knew this holy God. She honored him. And now we've come full swing, and that's the introduction to the book. That's the whole introduction. Uh, And I'm pointing at nothing. It's the introduction. (laughs) Chapters 1 through 7 is to say, read this book as case studies in taking God's holiness seriously. That is honoring God. And those who don't honor God, who don't take Him seriously, 
What does that look like? There are a few places I enjoy eating more than Chipotle. Man. You know, they, they wrap up this steak burrito. I get all the hot stuff, the black beans, the white rice, and I had them add the fajita greens, and it just, you know, it fills this thing up, and then I open it back up, and I put more hot sauce on, and I, it, it fills me. But then I found out that if I get the burrito bowl, they'll actually fill the bowl up more than they'll fill up my thing, and then I just ask for the tortilla on the side. So I even get more. What? Tortillas? Oh, I didn't know that. Great! So I just, I, this thing, I mean, it, it's so awesome. You know, you're, you're holding it and you're just, and it goes in and it's, it's much better than anything any fast food joint can offer me. I just delight in it. I'm honoring Chipotle in my words right now. And I'm making Nathan hungry. Now I'm going to be bold here. I'm going to look down at someone I treasure, namely Deborah Arthur. She has a little bit of seasonedness, more than I do. My wife and I, we were just odd. We've known each other for 20 years, been married for almost 19. But when I look at these two here, they've been friends, I don't know if longer than I've been alive. Maybe. Probably, I don't know. 48. Praise God. Okay, so I'm going to look at Deborah, and I'm going to say, Deborah, what kinds of things does Brad do for you that just make you feel important to him? Weighty. Weighty to him. Anything at all? There's... <laughs> so when she travels like she did to see her daughter and son-in-law, Brad's not able to go to her, go with her. She comes home and there's a bouquet of roses for her consistently. What does that say to you? He loves me. We, we can learn from that, guys. That, that's good. Okay, what else? Mm-hmm. So the fact that when you call, he's willing to pause. When you have a need, he's willing to pray. So he's willing with you to guide you to the throne where our only help can come from. And you feel honored in that. It's beautiful. All I want us to see is We're a people who know how to glorify, how to honor people, how to recognize their weightiness, how to honor things. And that's beautiful. Teresa and I, just last night, we told the kids, go read on your beds, and we climbed up on our bed and just looked at the ceiling and took 15 minutes and just talked. Just talking, she felt loved. And it was nice for me to have her by me. I felt loved. And the kids were staying in their rooms. I felt loved. (laughs) 
God says, honor me. Talk to me. Listen to me. Follow me. Treasure me. This isn't rocket science. It just takes intentionality to pause and say, what does it look like to bring honor to God in my own thinking, in my own doing, in the music I'm listening to, in the movies I'm watching, in the way that I'm treating my children, in the way that I'm driving, in the way I'm handling myself in the workplace? What what would it look like to say, God's weighty to me, God matters to me? That brings God glory. It shows the world He's being put on display as someone that matters to us. That's what this book is about. Trying to reorient a people who had misplaced their affections. So the ark arrives then back in Israel, and they learn their lesson, and it ends up sticking at... at, uh, The ark stays at... Oh, Beshemesh, for a little while. Then it shows up at Kiriath-Jerim, and it's there for 20 years. And then finally David comes on the scene and brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. He sets up a tent, and then his son David builds the temple. So no longer at this point, geographical transition, no longer is the Ark of God roaming. No, the presence has become a settled spot. And then we move from a typical Near Eastern king to one truly committed to the honor of the Lord. So this book is about transitions. And then it has two themes that work side by side. And in fact, the the first one is the dominant one, but we see it magnified in the person of the king. Those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Yahweh exalts the humble... That is the God-dependent, not the self-reliant. He exalts the humble and despises the self-sufficient, and he will bring salvation to and through his anointed king. Here's Hannah. You see both of those operative, both those dual themes. He will guard the feet of his faithful, but the wicked will be put down. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. And then our verse. Here's Shiloh, the location, it's at least at the summit of, of Shiloh in Israel, the top of the hill, we know where that is, and at the top, most likely where the tabernacle was, they've put this little tiny lookout tower. Those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Now we go to the end of the book. So that's the beginning of the book setting the thesis. Here's the end of the book. So we're looking for those who honor me, I will honor, and God will bring salvation to and through his king. This dual message, and that the king is ultimately the one who's supposed to be displaying for all of us what it means to honor God. And the ultimate king provides the perfect picture. Christ coming and glorifying his father perfectly. Yahweh is my rock, says David. He's my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. He's my shield and the horn of my salvation. He's my stronghold. He's my refuge. He's my savior. You save me from violence. Great salvation he brings to his king. He shows steadfast love to his Messiah, little Messiah, to David and his offspring forever. With the faithful, 
You show yourself faithful. That's the exact same word used by Hannah earlier. But the ESV translates it in 2 Samuel as merciful, but in 1 Samuel as faithful. So I just changed them both to faithful because they're the same. With the faithful, you show yourself faithful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. With the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. That's the message of the book. And what's awesome is that David goes on in just the next few lines to say, you're the one who makes my way blameless. And that brings it all full circle. It's not just God looking for the blameless and only those who'll help, but He's the one who makes the blamelessness in the first place. He enables the very thing that He commands so that He can bring forth the blessing. We see the same image in Jesus' words in Luke 18, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And Peter saying, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I want to be that kind of a man. And I want you to be those kind of people who are not self-sufficient. I'm trying to teach my kids what that means. Why do we need to pray when we get in the car and begin to drive? Because I... God has said in Romans 14, 23, 24, 25, somewhere right there. Anything that's not done from faith is sin. Faith is the one act of the human will that takes the spotlight off of us and puts it all on God. I don't even want to drive without doing it dependently let alone teach a class like this. Because God opposes the proud, and I do not want the King of kings and the Lord of lords who speaks and brings life and who speaks and brings death. Or maybe it's better, stops speaking and brings death. I don't want that God to be opposing me. So I plead with him, God, make me more dependent. Help me to trust in you. Put me in context that even humble me so that you're made more of in my life. So now we come to 1 Samuel chapter 8. The request for a king. So Samuel became old. He made his sons judge over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel. The name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. They've got great names. First one's name is God is Yahweh. The second's name is Yahweh is my father. But his sons didn't walk in his ways, but turned after selfish after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So the elders gathered and said to Samuel, Your sons are old and don't walk in your ways, so appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. What's wrong with that request? Because, look at the text, it goes on to say, this thing displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said, Obey the voice of the people, for they have not rejected you, they've rejected me from being king over them. So this is not good. What's wrong with this request, I ask again? Pardon? 
Okay, so they have a king, namely Yahweh, and they want to be like the nations. Those are the two answers on the table. It detracts from God's preeminence? Okay. Let's recall the story of God's glory, ultimately in Christ. We start out in Genesis 3.15 with focus on that God is going to raise up a redeemer, a deliverer, a male offspring of the woman. That male offspring finds himself bound up then, by the time we get to Abraham, as part of the promises, kings will come from you. And not only kings in general, there will be one who will rise from Judah, a king. In Numbers 24, looking at the promises given to Abraham that all the stars in the sky are pointing to your heir, then Numbers 24 says, a star will rise from Judah, from Jacob. A single star, the great sun. And when the sun rises over the horizon, making day rather than night, all the other stars in the sky will grow strangely dim in light of this one. And then we come to Deuteronomy 17. When you come to the land that, your Lord, that the Lord God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like the nations. Don't ask for a king like the nations. That's evil. Is that what he says? What does he say? You may indeed set a king over you whom Yahweh your God will choose. So look closely at the Deuteronomy passage and then look closely at 1 Samuel 8. What's the difference in the quotation? 1 Samuel 8 is clearly worded to echo this passage in the covenant. You read the covenant history in light of the covenant document. So what's the difference? Okay. You appoint for us a king. They're asking Samuel to do something. They haven't gone directly to God. He's the prophet. We have to think how, how that would look. What else? They want a king that they can see. Okay. 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 All right. So they're in all likelihood, is a little um, help God mindset. There was one other comment. Okay. Look at the quote is not identical. And seeing that the quote is not identical, we want a king to judge us like the nations versus a king like all the nations. All of a sudden, it suggests that the problem isn't necessarily with the king, but the type of king they were looking for. The desire wasn't a bad desire. If it had been aligned with the trajectory of Genesis 3.15, all the way up to, God, you know what kind of king we need. Give it to us in your time. A king who will be a man of the word and not oppressive to us. But what they want is something that's going to... That word judge is significant. Because we've just come out of the book of Judges. And you've got physical deliverers who God is raising up as the point men to be the overcomers. And yet God's the one, very clearly, who raised up those judges. And here, 
They just want the king to do that. It's as if they're trying to trump God's way, something. His timing, his way. What's clear is that Samuel goes on to give the warnings against kingship and the type of king that he portrays is an abusive king. A king who will take your daughters out of your homes at young ages to serve in his kitchen. The king who will take your sons out before even their age-appropriate time to serve in battle and put them on the front lines to their death. You want that kind of king? And they say, yes, we want that kind of a king. But it's a very different picture that's being portrayed here than Deuteronomy 17 where the king is not involved in exalting himself and abusing the people. He's not a king over the people. He's a king of the people in Deuteronomy 17. But the king in this text is a king who will be over the people, and they're even asking for it. We want him to be our judge. And it seems to be supplanting if with this judge idea is the whole idea of determining what is right and what is wrong, evaluating cases, then they're also supplanting God's way in doing this. Here's what the text says. Obey the voice of the people, for they've rejected not you, but me. Elsewhere, first chapter 10, it says... They've, they've rejected their true protector. Notice. But today you've rejected your God. In requesting the king, you've rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses and you've said, set a king over us. So what they meant was, we want someone else to be our protector rather than God. That's at least how it was interpreted by the prophet. And then, this is a little bit tricky, but see if you can track with my thinking. I think it's also not only saying we want a different protector, I think it's saying we want a different provider. So here's chapter 12. I want to try to understand what this whole wheat harvest thing is and God's ability to destroy their farms in an instant, how it relates to their request for kingship. Is not the wheat harvest today? I will call upon Yahweh that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of, wit of Yahweh in asking yourselves for a king. So you request a king, and God says, fine, I'll destroy your wheat. And in doing that, they'll see how wicked their hearts are. It suggests to me that God's trying to say, you think he's going to be your provider? Fine, I'll take everything away and see how you do. And then you'll know that your wickedness is great. So Samuel's getting to the heart of what's at stake here. On the one hand, they think the king will be their protector. On one hand, the king will be their provider. And Samuel, amazingly though, offers that, okay, you want a king? If you honor God, he will honor you. Here's what it says. Samuel told the people, the rights and the duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and he laid it before the Lord. If you will fear the Lord and serve and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of Yahweh, if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow Yahweh, your God, it will be well. Okay, we've started wrong. We're off on the wrong foot. But, but if you hear me, 
If you let the word that I'm proclaiming penetrate into your soul and you begin to approach God as a weighty God, as a holy God, if you heed His word and keep His commandments, we have a God who is gracious to meet those who repent. And it can still get right. While you're breathing, there is still hope. But if you will not obey the voice of God, but rebel against the commandment, then the hand of God will be against you and against your king. So here's what we get in the story. A number of signals, I'm just going to fly through them here because I put a lot of words on the screen. It was either that or I just put them in front of me and read them. A lot of words on the screen, I'm just going to bust through chapters 8 through 14 and identify a number of signals that I as the reader... Say, it's like a flag being raised to either reader that says, okay, Saul's not a good guy. Saul's not the one. Things are not going well here. See if you recognize any of these points. Number one, it says in 1 Samuel 8.18, And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you chose for yourselves. But Yahweh will not answer you in that day. Now I hear that and I go back to Deuteronomy 17 that said, The king that I will choose. And it's not only there, it's in chapter 12, verse 13. It says the same thing. And now behold the king. Here he is, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. But that statement... The people chose the king, and they chose it for themselves. That seems to stand directly in contrast to Deuteronomy 17 that says, when you come into the land and you ask for a king, you shall have a king over you, whom the Lord chooses. So I see that and I say, okay, this isn't good. In contrast, Saul says, I have sought for myself a king according to my own heart. God's doing the action with respect to David. There is one text, and it's right in the middle, between 8.18 and 12.13, 10.24, you can just turn back there, that actually says, Do you see him whom Yahweh has chosen? You chose the king. You chose the king. Do you see him whom Yahweh has chosen? And I read that, and I'm wondering, okay, how am I supposed to read that? Well, it's right in the context. Notice what it says. Today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities, when you said, set a king over us. So this one text in the book that actually says, God chose the king, it's framed by the statement that the people chose chose the king for themselves. The people chose the king for themselves. And so when I read, you've rejected the king. There he is, the one God's chosen. There seems to be irony here. Almost like tongue-in-cheek. That's, that's what I would suggest. We're told that Saul is a Benjamite. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. It's the first time we read of him. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish a man of wealth, and he had a son named Saul. 
Benjamin doesn't have a good rap if you've been reading the story. It's from Benjamin in the book of Judges, in the city of Gibeah, which is where Saul comes from, in the city of Gibeah, where all those guys came to the house where the Levite had just gone in and they said, we want to sleep with that Levite. And then it opens up the door for civil war and Benjamin wants to protect the sodomy of Gibeah and Benjamin is willing to go into civil war against all the rest of the 11 tribes. That's the tribe that Saul comes from. And that doesn't... That's that's at least a signal. Something doesn't quite connect here. He doesn't have a good heritage. Saul looks good from the outside. It says in chapter 9, verse 3, sorry, chapter 9, verse 2, Kish's son was named Saul. He was a handsome young man. In fact, there was not a man among the people more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than all the people. Now this is significant. It plays into the story, doesn't it? Israel has their own giant. His name is Saul. He's a head taller than everyone else. Everyone else comes up to his shoulder. And Saul, when he stands, is seen by everyone. He looks the type. He looks royal. He looks like a champion. But what's he doing when we first find him? He gets sent on a mission to look for a bunch of asses and he comes up looking the same way. He can't find them anywhere. In contrast, David is first found. I I word that because I think it's intentional. We see Saul first looking for donkeys and he ends up looking like an ass. Where do we hear about David first? Samuel shows up in Bethlehem. He goes to his father's house, to Jesse's house. They go through the top seven brothers. Is this all your sons? No. There's one more. What's he doing? He's out shepherding the sheep, which is an image of kingship all throughout the ancient world. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 5, it specifically says, David declares, God raised me up to be shepherd of his people. He ends up looking the part. He's successful in the field, as we read about in 1 Samuel 17. When the bear and when the lion rose against me, I protected them. He's an image of royalty from the start, and it stands in contrast to the ass Saul. You look at the outward appearance. It's Eliab, David's oldest brother. He's the tallest of the brothers. I've rejected him. He's called tall. Saul's called tall. Goliath's called tall. The only three people in the Old Testament whose height, that word for high, is ever used of them. And all of them stand in opposition to David. And it's the same word that I mentioned last week in Hannah's prayer... You cry out, high, high. Goliath's high, Saul's high, and Eliab is high. And in the way it's translated in the ESV there in Hannah's song is, don't be proud in your heart. Don't elevate yourself above the Lord. 
Honor God. Don't honor yourself. That's what she's getting at. And so these guys are all depicted by pulling that word out of Hannah's song. They're depicted as those who are more concerned about themselves than about God. And then ironically, so that's 1 Samuel chapter 16, when God says, I've rejected them. Yahweh sees not as man sees. Man looks in the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. And this shepherd boy is the one. And then in chapter 17, David comes from Bethlehem with cheese and bread for his brothers who were fighting in battle against the Philistines. And what do we learn? Eliab, after David begins to question, well, what will be given to the man who fights? And it tells us right there that he's not the age of my son. Because he gets fired up when he learns there's a girl involved. And he's also fought a lion and a bear and won. He's not a wimp. So he gets there and Eliab, his brother, shows up in 1 Samuel 17 in that David and Goliath episode. And ironically, one chapter earlier, God says, Eliab's the one with the bad heart, David's the one with the good heart. And then Eliab says, you just have a bad heart. Those words are the very thing used in the text. And it's ironic because he only has eyes to see like the world sees. And he doesn't see the God dependence that saturates this man's life. While Saul is initially successful militarily, he quickly proves to have a rebellious spirit that is unwilling to obey what, when called upon and unwilling to wait when told. You've done foolishly, Samuel said. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God. For then Yahweh would have established your kingdom, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man according to his own heart, and Yahweh has commanded him to be prince over his people. Signals in the text that told us Saul was not, he didn't have a good promising future. So now we come to David. David's honoring of the Lord and the rise and establishment of an ideal royal figure. Saul's problem? Has Yahweh great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, Samuel asks, as he does in the obeying of the Lord? Remember that story? Ah. There's a huge theme going on in this story when he was called to defeat the Amalekites. The Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15, that's the group that first met Moses when they left Egypt. And God declared flood-type judgment on the Amalekites. They will all go down. And Saul was the one commissioned to put an end to them. This story is going to rise again in the book of Esther. There's a war of judgment theme because Haman is called an Agagite and Agag is the king of the Amalekites. Haman, the enemy in Esther, is a descendant of those that weren't put an end to by Saul. And so he kept the king. He didn't kill the king. God's judgment is against sin, and he had declared it's time for them to be over. 
but he kept some of the sheep and the goats. We're going to give you offerings. And Samuel says, is it better to obey or to pretend about your worship? Is it better to have authenticity in your soul or to look good on the outside to all your peers? And he feared man more than he feared God. That's what it tells us in the text. Rebellion is as the sin of a divination and presumption is an iniqu- as an iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. And in contrast, there's David. Samuel said to Saul, Yahweh has torn the kingdom from you and he's given it to your neighbor who's better than you. Better in what way? Don't look at his outward appearance or the height of his stature. There it is, Eliab's height. Because I've rejected him, for the Lord sees not as man sees, he looks at the heart. So that opens the door for us to just walk, to, to set this journey of contrasting David and Saul through the rest of the first book. And they're contrasted in so many different ways. Honoring God versus despising Him. Pray with me. Father, how much we need Your help to be the men and women You would have us be. How prone we are to wander. How self-reliant we can be. I ask that You'd overcome that in our souls. We long for the day when the righteous will be made perfect. But until that day, help us to take great comfort in the fact that we are righteous, that Christ has declared it so. You alone have the power by your word to change reality. Father, I pray that we would know your word well so that we can obey it. I pray that we would know ourselves well so that we would recognize our desperate need for more of you. Help us honor you. Thank you for giving us pictures of the coming Christ so that we might give praise to you for him. David was like Christ in all of his encounters with dependents, and that's who we are as well. May he be made much of as we respond to the grace that we've been given. Help our unbelief and give us hearts that savor you and are surrendered to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.